It's Friday, February 11th, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynesy, uh, we are on the eve of probably the biggest day in the baseball calendar so far this year in the, in the, the labor negotiation process. Uh, tomorrow, Saturday, uh, both sides are going to meet, and uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred has said that there will be a significant proposal made by the owners, and the hope is that this sort of jumpstarts things to, to really get serious as next week is uh, the approaching deadline for uh, pitchers and catchers to report. I don't think anybody really entertains any thoughts of that happening on time, but if, uh, if both sides are hoping to avoid losing regular season games at this point, uh, something's got to, something's got to give within the next, you know, week or so. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it, Joe. Um, you know, uh, Manfred said, uh, yesterday in his first, you know, public statements since the lockout started on December 2nd, uh, that, you know, you're always just one breakthrough away in negotiations where maybe you make some headway, maybe there's some give and take. And I think uh, it sounded like uh, that he was he was optimistic that that perhaps that that could that breakthrough could take place tomorrow on Saturday in New York when the two sides meet. Um, I'm not holding my breath on that, but uh, let's 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 be positive and and hopefully something does does crack and this process moves forward. Yeah, I, I don't think it's it's realistic to think that both sides are going to walk out of that meeting, you know, with smiles and handshakes and, you know, hey, we got something done. Uh, but it, it could be enough of a sort of a fulcrum to, to say, OK, well, now we're we're sort of leaning now towards the getting the process going and, and, and things. Uh, and really, I think that's what everybody's uh, hoping or expecting that this new proposal uh, from the, the owners will do. Uh, Manfred really sort of he listed uh, a bunch of things that a bunch of concessions and and changes uh, that were, were sort of aimed and I know it's it's all PR and window dressing at this point but you know we mentioned the universal DH and and both sides have sort of tried to claim that as a bargaining chip uh, in this process uh, there's a, just a, a lot of other things that he you know the willingness to to look at a a draft lottery system and a, a, a bonus pool for for first and second year players, all those things uh, haven't necessarily been, you know, put pen to paper and, and, you know, signed off on and agreed to, but, but, you know, they're out there and it looks like the, the league is willing to make those concessions. Uh, is, is there going to have to be some movement on the player side before anything really gets done here? Yeah, I think so, Joe. I think the players, you know, it, you could see, uh, you know, Manfred didn't come out and say it right, right away. But I think someone asked him, you know, is there one key issue that the players are asking for that that you know that could you know move this thing forward? And I think uh, the players are are asking for multiple asks. You know, they're they're kind of it's a multiple front from the players. They don't just want one thing. You know, they just don't want negotiate. You know, uh, for, you know every two every player with two years of service time to be eligible for arbitration they want you know a, a, a higher uh, a luxury tax uh, they, they they want um, you know um, a, a higher minimum they want you know uh, a, the draft lottery you know it, it so I think it's 
at least this is what I picked up on from Manfred. It's, it's, it's been hard for the owners to home in on one issue where they could, you know, really make headway on and, and impress the players and, and get them to move off the dime they're on. And, and one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I believe Manfred, you know, sort of stress it, there's uh, if you're going to have multiple asks like that, you know, maybe when we get to this point in the negotiating process, you pick one or two of those and you, you really stay firm to those. And, and the, the big asks that you have uh, that are third or fourth on your list, maybe you let those go until the next collective bargaining session, you know, and it, you got to play the long game with some of those and, you know, bringing them up at this point might get them brought back up at the next, you know, contract negotiations. And, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the way you work. The owners have that kind of perspective. The owners have that long range sort of vision. The players don't strike me as, as being able to have that sort of vision uh, on that. They, they sort of want what they want now. And, you know, why can't we get this and all of this? at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, it, you know, I think that the list of grievances by the players has grown, you know, pretty long over the last two uh, basic agreements. And, you know, I think uh, probably you, you learn in negotiating one-on-one, you're not going to get everything back that you gave up over, you know, the last 10 years in negotiations. I mean, that, you know, I think that's, that's a, a radical thought to, uh, to even, think that and if you read some of the you know the players quotes on on uh, social media they understand that they, they say you know like you said we've got to play the long game here we got to get a couple things done kick the can down the road to the next in the next four or five years you know when the when this basic agreement expires and right. then get that pendulum swung to where it's more more an even playing field for them at least you know the way they believe it what did you make of Manfred coming out and saying well, you know, hey, in the last, you know, decade or so, I'm the guy who's gotten this done. You know, I'm the guy who's, who's reached these, these agreements uh, on multiple occasions without disputes before. He, he was the, the negotiator for, you know, before he became commissioner, he was the commissioner's negotiator in these, these sort of situations. Yeah, I think he was a little, you know, he said he doesn't pay attention to uh, – social media and the criticism he's received, but you can tell it's, it's, it's kind of bothered him a little bit. And, uh, you know, he, he has, he, he was able to get what four basic agreements done without losing a game. And, uh, you know, some people, you know, forget about that. And, uh, you know, he's an easy villain. The commissioner <laughs> is always an easy target. Yeah. Well, and uh, it, it doesn't help that, there's there is this this social media you know sort of groundswell from the players and you, you've got guys like Max Scherzer and uh, Andrew Miller going out there and, and talking about you know how difficult the negotiations have been and uh, it, it's easy for the, the public to to come out and support the, the the faces of the players that they like as opposed to the the figurehead of sort of this this sort of evil empire I guess uh with with Manfred I, I I don't know well how hopeful are you that tomorrow's session is going to yield what needs to be done in order to get things moving I don't know Joe it's it's you know flip a coin on these things you know you just I don't think it gets done until there absolutely has to get done 
and I don't think we're at that point yet. And uh, so I'm, I, I hope there's some progress made here. I hope there's on a, at the bonus pool. That seems like an, you know, a, 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 an area where they can negotiate. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if the, uh, the, you know, raising the luxury tax to see, you know, on the competitive balance tax, is that really, I, you know, I, I don't see them coming off that. I don't see the owners coming off that. I don't see the owners coming off revenue sharing. And it's right. just, it depends how, 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 you know, how far the players have dug their heels in on that. Yeah. Both of those issues, you know, uh, affect the guardians directly. So, you know, yeah, things I mean, if you're the guardians, why would you want less revenue sharing? I mean, if you're Paul Dolan, you got to be banging your shoe on the table here right. and saying that there's no way that can happen. And, and, and why would you want a higher luxury tax threshold? That only makes the teams like New York, Boston, LA, and Chicago able to go out and spend more money. Yeah. Right. And you know, they're never going to come close to the luxury tax anyways, the, no. the guardians, but still, you know, you, that was the fear, you know, that that's been the fear all along that the great players are all end up in New York, Los Angeles, and, uh, you know, in, in, in the big market in Chicago. All right. Uh, one of the other areas that uh, Manfred was asked about and just uh, briefly mentioned was uh, the situation in Tampa Bay, uh, whether or not the Rays, you know, are, are looking to split games uh, between Montreal, uh, and, and Tampa, whether they can get a new stadium built down there. Uh, his position was that, you know, Tampa is a major league market. They believe that moving forward, they can sustain a team down there and that it doesn't sound like there's going to be much movement in terms of uh, the, the team going anywhere. They, they will now focus more on getting a new stadium deal uh, done or in place down there. Yeah, they've got to get a new ballpark. As much as I, I think I like to trap the trap. I think it's kind of a funky place. I, I like. You're the only reporter I've ever heard say that he likes that place. But go <laughs> I, ahead. I like the I like the uh, the circles up there. You know, with balls playing off, bouncing off the uh, the, the rings up there. Yeah, <laughs> I Can't just walk. think it's it's kind of a cool place. And uh, but they've got to get a new ballpark. And I don't know if they're going to put it in Tampa. I think I don't know if. You know, I think putting it in St. Pete is kind of a, a tough, a tough goal because, you know, you got, you've got, if you're living Tampa, you got to drive so far to get to the ballpark. Uh, so I think they've got to find a place that, you know, kind of strikes a happy medium between St. Petersburg and Tampa. And uh, I'm in, and just, uh, I, I, I didn't think that the Montreal Tampa Bay thing was ever, a feasible thing. I just, I just didn't get it. You know, it's either one or the other. And, right. you know, I love Montreal. Uh, hopefully they get an expansion team, but sharing one team wasn't going to work. Yeah, you need multiple teams in Canada, right? Yeah. yeah. How can you not have multiple teams? In yeah. Canada? I mean, it's the biggest, like, it's like rushes as big as Russia, isn't it? Well, or, but look at how the, look at how Toronto supports uh, the Blue Jays. It, it's, it's unbelievable. They've, they've got uh, some of the best fans in the world up there. So, all right, let's get into uh, today's blind reveal on our 25 most memorable uh, Cleveland baseball personalities of the last 38 years. This is a good one. Uh, this is a mainstay in Cleveland baseball over the last, what, 30 years, basically. In 20 major league seasons, this guy uh, collected 1,236 uh, hits. Uh, played 11 years in Cleveland, posted a batting average of 277, 
was the 1990 uh, American League Rookie of the Year and Gold Glove winner and uh, has on separate occasions stepped in and acted as a first base coach, uh, manager, and just all around uh, everything, uh, do everything within the franchise. Who are we talking about today, Lindsay? It's got to be Sandy Alomar. Uh, just uh, really a fixture. When you think of Cleveland Indians baseball or Cleveland Guardians baseball, you know, I think of Sandy Alomar. You know, that's one of the first players that pops into my mind. Just uh, like you said, Joe, he played. He was rookie of the year in 1990. Him and Carlos Baerga helped set the foundation for the for the great teams of the 1990s um, and uh, what played 10, 11 years here, six time all-star. And he just finished uh, his, his 12th year as a coach here, you know? Right. So, I mean, he's been here 22, 23 years. I mean, he's been associated with the Indians and uh, you know, Joe, I think, you know, his brother, Roberto, his father, his brother, Roberto played 17 years. His, his father, Sandy Sr., played 15 years. Uh, Sandy, Sandy played 20. And together, they have over 5,000 hits in the big leagues. But, but, you know, I think if Sandy had stayed healthy, I think he would have joined his brother, Roberto, in the Hall of Fame. I just, he was that good of a catcher. But, you know, at 6'5", and between 220 and 240, I mean, he just had a hard time staying out of the way a, a trouble back there, you know, split fingers, broken cheekbones, blown out knees. It was, you know, he just had a hard time staying healthy. Yeah, it was it, it, not your your typical prototype, you know, catcher. Usually catchers are a little more compact and, and you know, uh, low to the ground. This uh, this was a big guy, 6'5", and he talked about when he first came to, to Cleveland, the, the thing that jumped out at you was his, his arm, his throwing arm. He would throw guys out from his knees. And I think everybody, I, I keep going back with these guys to, to, you know, when I was growing up and, and playing ball in the yard and, and throwing and, and playing catch with my cousins. And uh, just everybody wanted to imitate Sandy Alomar throwing guys out at second base from his knees. That everybody yeah. had that, like that move. And he, you wind up with a face full of dirt if you don't do it the right way, but, but that's what we all got from watching Alomar play in the, the early nineties was he would throw guys out from his knees. And it was, it, it was the, like the, the big thing to, to sort of latch on to. Yeah. One of the reasons, you know, they were able to get him from San Diego is that they had Benito, uh, the Padres had Benito Santiago there and mm -hmm. they were kind of like, you know, uh, mirror images of, of each other as far as catching goes. They both threw guys out from their knees. And I remember, Joe, when when this play, this trade was in the works, uh, I, I had gotten a tip that, you know, they were, you know, Sandy Alomar was in it and and I, Carlos Baerga was in it. And I called Louis Isaac, the longtime bullpen coach. And uh, and he's, he's, you know, in Puerto Rico, you know, he's a, kind of a big, right. you know, uh, you know, he's kind of and he 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 was so excited about it. he said wait till you see these guys you know these guys are incredible players by erga and alomar and you know that that got me really excited and both of them uh lived up to the billing right uh you talk about uh benito santiago you talk about louis isaac uh yadier molina uh, roberto perez uh the 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 tradition of the the puerto rican catcher uh really sort of uh, it, you know, it didn't start with Sandy, but he was definitely one of the prime examples of it. And, and 
the the way that that among that group of, of players they've they've passed around the knowledge and uh you know just sort of fostered that i i, I believe uh pudge rodriguez as well correct yeah 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 Ravon rodriguez so you're talking hall of fame guys there uh there's a there's a mural in puerto rico i don't know if if, if you were when you were down yeah. there in 2017 the the mural with all the 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 like the the history of puerto rican catchers and it's uh you know, it's an honor to be part of that. And, and when you talk to Sandy Alomar about catching and the, the skills that he helped Roberto Perez develop and Jan Gomes develop here uh, in Cleveland, uh, it, it, you could tell the, the pride. There's something like in his eyes that he's sort of he's picturing that mural while he's talking to you about it, you know? Yeah, that's 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 funny that you mentioned that because I've got pictures of that mural when they, they when the uh, the Indians or well, when Cleveland went there to play the Twins in a. I think a two or three game series in, in uh, San Juan in the ballpark mm -hmm. in San Juan. It, it's really cool. Yeah. It's, it, it's really cool. And we, the Indians went there earlier than that too. A few, a couple, you know, when Sandy was still playing and uh, they were play they played the Mets over in a couple games. These were exhibition games and, you know, Sandy took us to his home in Salinas, uh, you know, Terry Pluto and I, and a couple other reporters went to his home and, met his parents and you know his kids were there and they they had they all lived together in a little block you know the the whole family was there it was really cool and I remember uh you know driving into the town and there was this wall and there were pictures of uh you know the two Alomar brothers and Sandy senior it was it was really cool it was uh you know and uh it was just uh you know like that tradition like you said of the uh Puerto Rican catchers is really a strong one yeah, they're, they're, they're like national heroes. It's, it's pretty amazing and impressive. Uh, take us back to when that trade happened. And like you said, it, it, it transformed the, the, the franchise for the, for the Indians because it set up, you know, the, the success from 94 through, you know, really that, that's sustained today. Uh, with, did, you, did you know that, that Alomar and Bayerga were going to be the cornerstones of that sort of, you know, uh, movement there for for Cleveland yeah I, uh, at least with the Alomar you know Carlos had a kind of a tough time uh, breaking into that lineup in in 1990 John McNamara was the manager and he was up and down a little bit Carlos could hit I mean there was Carlos could hit from day one but he, he they, they had to find a spot for him but Sandy was a starting catcher from day one um, you know I, John McNamara did a great job that year bringing uh, Alomar and Bayerga along. I remember, you know, Alomar was a rookie of the year that year, won the gold glove. And, you know, toward the end of the year, he broke the handmade bone in his hand. And, uh, you know, Louis Isaac was a bullpen coach there and he was a you know, former catcher from Puerto Rico. And he told, he told Sandy, Hey, if you want to win the rookie of the year, you got to stay in the lineup. And, uh, and he did, you know, he, he, he did, he stayed in there and, had the surgery after the season. And, uh, you know, that just gave you an indication, you know, you know, what kind of player he was. And, and then, you know, even, you know, the Indians weren't real good in 90, 91 and, you know, they, and, but Sandy, you know, was, 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 was really kind of as a lead, he kind of established himself as a leader. I mean, I remember in 90, they got, they got beat bad by, or 91, maybe they got beat bad by Milwaukee and Sandy tore the clubhouse up. And McNamara was like, <laughs> told us, you never see a rookie do that. Yeah, that was in his, in his rookie year. 
You know, it was another game late in 90 when he, you know, when he, he beat, uh, beat the Blue Jays, Blue Jays with a home run in like the 13th inning. And that's when the Blue Jays were getting ready for their World Series run. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he said, and he, and, you know, he said, that's when you knew that, you know, this, this guy was kind of, he was going to be a, a really a good player. And, uh, and uh, I just remember, you know, he has a temper. Yeah. Sandy's there's, there's a inner fire there. And there was a game in, in, in Detroit uh, um, when, uh, you know, the, the people were getting knocked down on both sides and getting hit with pitches. And, and this pitcher, John Doherty, uh, like in the eighth inning, around the eighth inning, hit Glenn Allen Hill. And then Sandy was up next and uh, Doherty knocks him, knocks Sandy down, you know, with, you know, with a high head, high fastball, Sandy comes roaring out there, karate kicks him and, and the, both benches empty, big brawl. They both get suspended, but Doherty goes on the DL with broke, you know, bruised ribs. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I, I was asking Sandy about that and he goes, you know, when I was a kid, you know, there was a time when he stopped playing baseball. He didn't want to play baseball. He was riding motorcycles. He was taking karate. And, uh, you know, that that's what uh, motor, I did. I should say dirt bikes, dirt bikes. You know, he was doing dirt bikes and uh, and taking karate. And, uh, you know, you can see that. There, that was, I, and I don't think anyone ever knocked Sandy down after that. I don't think that, I mean, he got hit by some pitches, but I don't think anyone, you know, the, the message was out that you, you didn't mess I'm, with this. I'm just picturing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in uh, Enter the Dragon, or, or you know, in that Bruce Lee movie where he's like <laughs> doing karate. I'm like, uh, that, that's how that's how larger than life Sandy Alomar is. All right, now fast forward to you know '95, '96, '97, and you know the Indians are the the talk of baseball, and they're playing in the World Series. And that '97 season was probably the most magical we've seen for an individual Indians player. In, in such a long time, uh, Alomar hit 324 that year and had a 900 OPS as a catcher. And just, uh, just an amazing year. Uh, won the All-Star Game MVP in his home park uh, by hitting a home run. Uh, hit the, the, what, the, the, the game-tying home run off of Mariano Rivera in, in the postseason. Just, uh, you know, time after time at the plate, Alomar was the one coming through with these, uh, these, these moments. I, 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 I just remember that feeling so satisfied that this guy who had, had been there and had, you know, established himself as, as a great catcher was now also showing he was a great hitter as well. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, I, I think that was the year he had the 30 game hitting streak too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, I mean, that was his best year ever. And, uh, and I think, you know, I, I want to say, he he had the for a while he had the record for M, uh, RBIs in the postseason because th they played like eighteen postseason games that year right. before finally losing to the Marlins you know what in eleventh inning of Game Seven of the World Series but uh, just uh, just a great year and uh, you know it it was uh, you know kind of well deserved because he had he had been through a lot going up to that with, as far as, you know, the injuries, the injuries were concerned. Yeah. And then the weird thing was he, he wins the all-star game in 97, the all-star game MVP in 97 and Robbie wins it the next year. So oh. they, you know, they kept it in the family. There you go. Uh, I, I remember I, I talked to uh, a couple years back. I talked to him 
2019 before the all-star home run derby. And I was uh, interviewing him about Mark McGuire's home run that hit the scoreboard at uh, Jacobs Field. And he was obviously behind the plate uh, for that home run. And Oral Hershiser was on the mound. And he just, it, his eyes glazed over talking about it. And, and just, uh, I remember he kept repeating the phrase, you know, if, uh, if the scoreboard wasn't there, that ball would have traveled all the way around the world and hit me in the back of the head behind the plate. <laughs> that that, that, that's what he believed, uh, you know, that that ball was hit so hard. Uh, you, you forget about just how, how much a part of all that success and all that time there, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, celebrating all those division championships and, and postseason runs. Uh, for him to come back to the franchise that that sort of you know nurtured him in that way and contribute the way he has over the last you know 12 13 years as a coach as a stand-in manager from time to time uh you know what's that say about him and his character and his connection to Cleveland yeah I think you know the best move Maniac ever made as manager of the Indians was you know making a push to get Sandy back in a Cleveland uniform when he was, you know, working as a, a kind of a, 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 a catching coach for the Mets. And, uh, you know, that was a great move by, by Manny. And uh, I just think he's kind of a, a fabric of, 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 of the, of this organization. I, I, you know, I just think he's, he's a huge part in it, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I think he, he, he knows, you know, he, I, he loves Cleveland, I think, and and the and the fans of Cleveland love him. You know, they 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 really respect him. They know, you know what how how important he was to those great teams. And Joe, let me let me tell you what kind of guy Sandy is. My my grandson is a catcher. You know, he's like <laughs> ten years old, eight, nine, ten years old, and uh, and he his dad bought him a, a glove, a, a catcher's glove uh, last year, and it was kind of stiff. You know, and it, and he, uh, and my son asked me, well, how do you break this in? So, so I called Sandy and, and Sandy told me, oh, you got to steam it. You got to do this. You got to do that. And so I, you know, from a six time gold glove winning all-star, you know, he's giving me tips on uh, how to break in a catcher's glove. So that's, that's a pretty good dude right there. Yeah. I, and I'll tell you, he's, he will always stop to answer your questions and, and talk to you about anything you want to bring up uh, as, as far as approachable, uh, in and around the clubhouse, he, he's always busy. He's always going from, you know, place to place in the clubhouse. You know, he's got uh, a lot of responsibilities under Tito there. Uh, and and I'll tell you, the, the season where he, in the 2020 season where he managed basically almost the whole season uh, in, in Tito's place, uh, he, he, he stepped in and did the media thing like a pro. Uh, it was, it was great. It was refreshing almost to get, some you know unguarded responses from him uh, as uh, you know there were there were times where you kind of were like oh maybe maybe uh he, he shouldn't be saying some of these things but his honest assessment of players i think the players really love him and and love love playing with him and for him uh it, it just all around uh sandy alomar is is what you want uh, a, a a guy a cleveland baseball player to be and, and that's, uh, we've been lucky to have him for the last 30 years. Definitely. I, and I don't know, uh, you know, everyone always asks when Sandy going to get a managerial job and he's 55 now. So I, I don't know, you know, if, if he really wants to manage, I, I think he, if the right situation came along, 
he, he, I think he'd be a great manager. Um, you know, the, the way the game is going now, you know, it's, you know, there's some isolated incidents, instance, instances where, you know, there's some veteran managers, older guys that manage, but it's more of, you know, younger guys. But I think Sandy, you know, he's bilingual. He, I think he's a catcher. He knows pitching. He knows catching. Um, I think he, he's, he's, you know, he knows the analytics. I think he'd be a great manager if, 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 if that's what he wants to do. And right. I, I, I don't know if that's what he wants to do. Cause I think he's, he's pretty happy where he is. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of people around here just naturally assume that, you know, if, and when one day Tito decides to step away that, Oh, well, they'll just plug Sandy Alomar into, into that spot. And, and I don't know that that's the case. Uh, I, I, part of me hopes that that's the case, but you know, uh, it, it's gotta be the right fit for Sandy and, and he's got to, uh, he, he's got to accept it as, you know, it's not just sort of a token gesture. It's that they want him to be the guy uh, wherever he, he would eventually end up as a manager. And I, I truly believe that. And it's not a pride thing. That's just a, that's a practical thing too. You know, uh, if you're, if you're going to be given the keys to a, a franchise, to a team, you know, you want to make sure that you're the guy. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up today's edition. Uh, and a pretty solid week of, uh, of um, players and, and memories and names that uh, we've, we've been talking about here on the, the podcast. I uh, can't wait to, to see who we're going to talk about next week, the, the list you give me for uh, our, uh, our top 25 next week. Uh, Hoinsey, we'll talk to you again on Monday here on the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. All right, Joe.